0: This is the new yorker fiction podcast from the new yorker magazine i'm deborah treisman fiction editor at the new yorker each month we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss this month we're going to hear waiting for death in a hotel by italo calvino which was translated from the italian by martin mclaughlin and published in the new yorker in june of 2006.
1: this was michele's funeral procession he was a dead man pacing to his own grave along that hallway with its flaking stucco ceiling roses and the faded traces of wall mirrors above the marble mantles.
0: The story was chosen by Andre Alexis, whose novels include Childhood, Days by Moonlight, and Fifteen Dogs, which won the Giller Prize in 2015. Hi, Andre. Welcome.
1: I'm, how are you, Deborah?
0: I'm all right. So, uh, can you tell me a bit about your engagement with Calvino's work? Are you a long-time reader of his?
1: Um, I am deeply indebted to him in ways that it's going to be difficult for me to kind of squish down and make uh, (laughs) coherent quickly. He is uh, really important to me for his love of folklore. (laughs) He is also super important to me as a member of the uh, ULIPO, the Ouvoir de Littérature Potentielle, which was created in 1961, I think, by Raymond Canot and um, François Le Lyonnais, which is a group that tried to introduce mathematical ideas into the writing of fiction. And that creativity, that way of reading um, so that you can see both the surface and the depth structure, it was just very influential on how I think about literature.
0: And do you feel that you use some of his structural techniques in your own work?
1: Uh, Not only do I think that way, but I'm in the midst (laughs) of using (laughs) one of his novels, deep structure to create my own novel. I'm fascinated by the idea that you can take the deep structure of a story and add your thing to it, and it will change how that structure works and functions. So, for instance, if you take Invisible Cities, it has a very rigid mathematical pattern to it, like a sonnet does, you know, with its meter and, and rhyme scheme. But each use of that deep structure will produce something that's completely different and filled with the identity and the, the desires and whatnot of the person who was doing the writing. And that's one of the most beautiful things. So, yes, I've actually used his structures in my own work.
0: Mm-hmm. This story, Waiting for Death in a Hotel, was a very early story of his written when he was about 22. Yes. And not yet an Ulippian. (laughs) Yes. Um, Do you see those structures in it?
1: Well, this is what's so fascinating about this this story in which what you're seeing when you listen to uh, Waiting for Death in a Hotel is kind of like his natural music. I don't know if that's a good way of putting it. He's kind of an innately beautiful writer. And you see that here. But you also see, or it's also got a suggestion of why the Ulipian becomes important to him, why structures and changing his work becomes important to him. Because there's a sense from him that there's an ease in his writing that he may not trust himself. And so by screwing up his own work, like by forcing himself to think differently than comes naturally, I think that challenge is what, what really kept him going.
0: Mm-hmm. That's interesting because this this story was in his first story collection, The Crow Comes Last, published in, in Italian in 1949. But he didn't include it in his later collected stories or in a later edition of the same book. And it wasn't translated into English until 2006.
1: Beautifully translated by Martin McLaughlin. Oh, I thought that was a great translation. And it's so interesting that he would have chosen not to because it is... A story that reveals so much about him, but I think maybe in some ways this story might have been slightly embarrassing to him for a couple of reasons. One, it's very Sartrean. In um, when you think of uh, the wall, which is one of the Sartre's short stories where a guy is being interrogated, and it sort of had echoes of that existentialism to it. So he may have felt that it was betraying a little bit that influence, and also. Um, I don't know if you read his preface to Path to the Spider's Nest, um, which Martin McLaughlin translated, in that um, he speaks about Cesare Pavese guessing his reading and pointing out his closeness to folktales. So it may be that this story has too many of his influences right there for you to see. In that way, it's a very valuable story.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's also much more directly autobiographical than a lot of what he wrote. It was written in 1945 right after the war and Mm. when Calvino himself had just spent 20 months uh, in the Alps with the Garibaldi brigades, with the the Mm -hmm. partisan resistance movement. Mm. So I, I believe that a lot of the details in the story draw on his own experience. And perhaps that was a reason for feeling it just didn't fit with the other stories.
1: Well, it's interesting because he seems to have a little bit of a um, a love and hate relationship to so-called neorealism. He admits to being deeply influenced by the, ne- the neorealistic, and he speaks about how neorealism allowed a sense of landscape and a sense of storytelling to come together. Um, and so we're seeing that at work there— in, in uh, Waiting for Death in a Hotel. But I wonder how much of this is the spirit of the times rather than lived experience. You know, there was a moment in which he said, um, that's in Path to the Spider's Nest, that he um, had used people that he knew and transformed them in a way that he found unpleasant later on. So maybe there's also that, that maybe some of the people in this story... Um, are drawn from his real life, and he may have had regrets about turning them into mythological, expressionistic versions of themselves. It is youthful. It is sort of like him, but not him in control. Maybe him not quite in control. And um, maybe there's something about that that he finds, or that he found, anyway, troubling.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. We'll we'll talk some more after we hear the story. And now here's Andre Alexis reading Waiting for Death in a Hotel by Italo Calvino, translated from the Italian by Martin McLaughlin.
1: Waiting for Death in a Hotel At a certain time in the morning, the prisoners' wives began to arrive and started gesturing, their faces turned up toward the windows. From the top floor, the prisoners leaned out to ask and answer questions and it was as if the women's hands on the ground and the men's hands up above were trying to reach across those meters of empty space and touch. There was nothing about the big hotel, recently demoted to a barracks and a prison, that could give concrete shape to the inmates' loss of freedom. No iron bars or high walls. The only visible manifestation of their anguish, was the short yet insurmountable vertical distance between those with their feet in the hotel garden who were still in charge of their own destiny and those who had been brought to the hotel as though it were a country from which there was no return. Every now and then one of the prisoners at the window would turn to the hallway behind him and call out a name, Ferrari, Ferrari, your wife's down there. The man summoned would push his way through to the already crowded window and start smiling wanly and making gestures that were intended to signal resignation. Diego never went to the window. His family was far away, scattered by the war. He'd had enough of the endless seesawing of predictions and suppositions of good and bad news that the coming and going in the hotel garden conveyed to those above. His nerves were in shreds. He longed to let himself drift, whether toward disaster or toward the miraculous salvation that he still hoped for. He longed for summers spent stretched out on the sand at the water's edge, like the many summers of sand and sea in his past. Summers that had brought the lazy and unenterprising man to this point, to his first useful summer, which was now coming to an end. But time was a web of tense nerves, a puzzle that could be reshaped into a thousand patterns, all of them meaningless. Forlornly, the prisoners, most of whom had been captured by chance in the streets, paced the linoleum of the hotel's bare rooms, where only the white lips of the basins and the bidets grinned, blocked with foul water. When Diego had been transferred to the hotel the day before, from a prison in the fort where he had spent a day and a night with other men who had now perhaps been killed, it felt like being exhumed, finding himself in the spacious hotel With the warmth of these men all around him, ignorant and easily optimistic. He had laughed and joked, meeting up with men he knew. Michele, the comrade with whom he had been captured, was also among the prisoners in the hotel. The two men had rejoiced at finding each other safe, at being reunited after a twenty-four-hour separation, during which each had feared for the other's fate. Diego, had felt moved, but also encouraged as he ran his hand over the roughness of Michele's overcoat and the smoothness of his big, bald head, which came up to Diego's chest. Michele had cackled nervously, revealing his few teeth, and asked, What do you say, Diego? Will we put one over on the Nazis? Diego had said, I say we'll do it. We'll put one over on the whole of the Third Reich, we will. Even on von Ribbentrop? even on von Ribbentrop, even on von Brauschitz, even on Dr. Goebbels. And they'd crouched down beside a cold radiator to dispel their anxiety with laughter and jokes. They didn't yet know that several of those who'd been captured with them had already been executed. And Diego had felt the happiness of someone who has just been released after years in jail. The prison where he'd been held was an old fort on the harbor where the German anti-aircraft artillery was now installed. His cell had been used at some point as a detention area for German soldiers. On the walls were graffiti written by German homosexuals. Mein lieber Kamerad Franz, I am shut up here and you are far from me. Mein lieber Kamerad Hans, my life was happy when I was near you. There'd been about twenty of them in that cramped cell, stretched out on the ground in a row. An old man with a white beard dressed in hunting clothes, the father of one of the other prisoners, would get up every so often during the night, stepping over the bodies, and urinate, with considerable effort, into a can in the corner. Rust had worn holes in the can, and soon the old man's urine would flood the cell floor like a river. Inhuman, barked orders, as if issued by men who were half-wolves, echoed through the fort at each changing of the guard. The iron bars of the cell window looked out over the cliffs. The sea roared all night as it coursed through the rocks, like blood in the arteries and thoughts in the spirals of the brain. And each man thought endlessly of the corner he should never have turned, the corner that had brought him here. For Diego, it was the street corner that he and Michele had gone around to avoid the cordon, and which had put them face to face with a group of Germans in full battle gear, stopping passers-by in the middle of the road three meters away, as if in the opening scene of a film. The chain of sensations and images circled around in his mind like a rosary, telling him over and over that things couldn't have gone any other way, as he lay enclosed in the cell with German homosexual graffiti on the walls and the old man constantly urinating in the dark. Or now, as he sat beneath the peeling stucco of the top floor of the hotel, suspended between life and death, while the men around him lay face down, as if struck by vertigo. Each day a certain number of them were selected, either for life or for death. In the morning, the sergeant and Snakeskin would appear with a bundle of documents in their hands. Those who got their documents back were free to leave. They'd hug their wives and walk off arm in arm across the hotel lawn, trailed by the envious eyes of those left behind. In the evening, a lead-gray van full of armed soldiers would come to a halt outside the hotel. The sergeant, and Snakeskin would call out other names, and one or two men would be driven off, surrounded by those helmeted soldiers. The next day, their women would turn up below the windows asking for them, and then go from one military office to another, pleading with the interpreters. No one knew where the men had been taken. Other women spoke of shots heard in the evening, down in the evacuated area near the harbor. For Diego and Michele, too, there were only these two alternatives, freedom or death. Either their documents would be recognized as valid, and in that case they really had put one over on the whole Reich, and they would be able to talk about it in the hideouts of an evening amid the laughter of their comrades. Or it would be the lead-gray van disappearing among the ruined houses by the port, snakeskin, having turned them in. Snakeskin examined all the prisoners on arrival to see if he recognized any former comrades among the men lined up outside the hotel. A slight lad in his tight uniform, with a wet smile on his parched lips flecked with saliva, Snakeskin walked along rubbing his sweaty hands together. He was pale, with a cold that reddened his nostrils and eyelids, and he had the beginnings of a blondish moustache. His eyes glistened with emotion at the idea that he was the arbiter of life and death over the men who stood before him, holding their breath at his every word and gesture. These were moments of inebriating triumph for Snakeskin, but they were colored always by anguish. Every time he appeared in the hotel hallways, the inmates would crowd around him to plead with him, calling him by his name, Tullio, Tullio. He'd look up at the docile men around him and see the sharp hatred beneath their submission. To one of them he'd say, "'Today you are courting me. Tomorrow you will shoot me in the back.' Snakeskin would save one day, condemn the next. He was capricious and ambiguous, Many of those who'd known him before when he was on their side believed they were finished when they found themselves being interrogated in his presence. But he pretended not to recognize them. Others, who thought that he'd be merciful because of past favors or friendships, had seen him bare his gums in a sneer, taunting them like a cat with a mouse. At times, snakeskin seemed set on bloodshed At others in the grip of remorse. During the inspection, he had stopped in front of Michele and said, We've met somewhere before. Michele had jerked his head up as if a drop of cold water had gone down his back and with a bewildered look had made a grimace of ignorance. Diego sat on the tiled floor of the hallway, his hands on his knees. Michele was beside him, looking out the window. He was waiting for his wife. She had gone to talk to Luciano, an SS interpreter who worked for the committee and who had pledged to get them out. Michele's wife was much younger than him, a child bride. She had big, gray, cloudy eyes, but there was something stern in her face, framed as it was by smooth, black hair, and something joyful about her thin body in her short lilac dress. Seeing her made you regret that life was what it was, painful and obscene, that nothing was settled and peaceful. With a woman like that, Diego would have liked to wander through sunny countries where there was no injustice. He said, if we survive, when all this is over, I want to come back to this hotel for a week, when it opens again for tourists. Michele didn't reply. Diego said, I'll stretch out on the floor right here where I am now, in the middle of all the respectable people who will think I'm mad. Michele continued to look out the window, not turning around. Then he turned and quickly said, as though it were about to escape his mind, Diego, if you want any bread, my wife has brought some. She's given it to a soldier who'll give us some. Diego asked, Your wife came? Did she speak? Michele did not look him in the eye. He was staring now at the ceiling. Listen, Diego, I've had it. Snakeskin shafted me. Luciano told my wife. She's down there crying. These were Michele's words, and in those words was the simplicity of something long-feared and now inevitable. Michele had started to pace up and down the hallway, his hands in his pockets, his enormous eyes hidden beneath his heavy eyelids. Sometimes the others addressed him and he stared back at them, bewildered, as though having to return from a great distance to focus on what they were saying. Maybe he was thinking of the void, in order to prepare himself for not existing. Diego followed Michele's pacing from where he sat, worried that the other prisoners in their ignorance would put an end to that death walk. One word from the talk of living men might be enough to make Michele suddenly desperate for the life he knew he'd lost. Diego knew that the man in the hallway was walking toward death, that it was now merely a thousand or two thousand paces away. This was Michele's funeral procession. He was a dead man pacing to his own grave along that hallway with its flaking stucco ceiling roses and the faded traces of wall mirrors above the marble mantles. As he watched Michele, Diego reflected on him. An aging comrade, Michele was a good man despite his faults. Not very courageous, not entirely in line with the party. They had often quarreled over Michele's obsession with spouting slogans, his desire to always be right, his claim to be an autodidact. Now Michele was walking along the hallway, his hands in the pockets of his overcoat, his bald head sunk into his shoulders, his big bovine eyes lost in the void, as if bewildered by the enormity of all that was about to be taken from them. He was a poor soul in an old overcoat with a three-day beard. But Diego seemed to see in him, in those bovine eyes of his, in his slow, absorbed pacing, a threatening force of nature. It seemed to him that Michele would continue to walk like this even after death. That the next day he would enter the rooms where the German officers were enjoying their debauchery, He would come in through the window, enormous but clad still in his poor overcoat, his hands in his pockets, his bald head and his bovine eyes lost in the void, and he would walk with his slow steps in total silence across the champagne-stained tablecloths, past the illuminated Christmas trees, the sparkling iron crosses, the naked breasts and thighs, to the German officer's consternation, and the women's screams. And he would continue thus to walk the earth even after the war was over. The rich would have no peace in their houses, no joy in their families, without this short but enormous man coming in through the windows and crossing their rooms. On the tables around which war and peace are decided, and everywhere that people obstruct, destroy, or lie to others, wherever falsehood is preached, Wherever unjust gods are adored, there would always appear the shade of the man killed at the harbor that evening. One of the prisoners spoke of men hanged by the Germans. Diego saw Michele dangling from a harbor lamp post, and it seemed to him that all the men around him had killed Michele, all of them. It was an endless sin that would remove all joy from their lives and that could be expiated only at the end of time. In the ripples where Michele had disappeared into the water, all that floated was his overcoat, its arms outstretched like a cross. The bell in the red buoy in the middle of the harbor rang out for the dead comrade, undulating in the waves. Beneath the water, the hawser that anchored the buoy ended in a noose, with Michele's neck inside it but then Michele's head floated to the surface, green with seaweed, with staring eyes. It let out a cry. The old man, dressed in hunting gear, got up in the night and began to urinate, groaning, standing enormous over all of them. The rivers overflowed. All men, good and evil, were submerged. The old man's organs, weary from having generated all men, now drowning the universe. Only Snakeskin fled over the earth, trying to escape, rubbing his sweaty hands, which were doused in the foul water of the hotel bidets. But every coffin held a dead man, murdered by him. The crowd surrounded him, submerged him in the flood. The van was late that evening, and everyone was relieved, saying that it would not come. Michele waited, watching from the window in the gathering gloom. Instead, four tourist buses arrived, driven by German soldiers. There was agitation, questioning, speculation among the inmates. Soon, the sergeant came up with his list and called out their names, one by one. Michele and Diego were called, along with the others, by the false names they had given. Indeed, the sergeant made a mess of Michele's name, as though he had never really understood it. The prisoners were divided into four groups and put onto the coaches, one by one. Diego and Michele found themselves together again, still part of the crowd, which was almost jealous of the injustice the two comrades had suffered. In the anxious voices of those men one word erupted, from God knows where. Marassi, Marassi, they are taking us to the Marassi prison. But that word was, in a way, a source of comfort to Michele and Diego. It meant that they were leaving, leaving the anguish of living beside death, leaving snakeskin and his ambiguity, leaving these familiar places that were teeming with traps. Diego felt the rough cloth of Michele's overcoat beneath his fingers, felt the blood flowing again through his arteries. He said, I told you that Luciano talked balls, didn't I tell you? And Michele said over and over again, what a bullshitter, eh? With a smile that was now more relaxed, as though he were finally getting the joke. And the comrades understood that whatever their destiny Whatever violence, cries, and exhaustion awaited them, they would nevertheless savor the bloody taste of being alive, of sharing pain like bread. The harsh tang of life would stay with them from now on in the screaming tunnels of Marasi, in the desolate barracks of the north, all the way until they came back.
0: That was Andrea Alexis, reading Waiting for Death in a Hotel by Italo Calvino, translated from the Italian by Martin McLaughlin. The story appeared in The New Yorker in June of 2006. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead,
1: Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after.
0: Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Andre, if if we go back to the idea that the story is to some extent autobiographical, presumably Diego is the character who has the most in common with, with Calvino at that time. And yet, that the very beginning, the first paragraph we read about him, he's described as a, a lazy and unenterprising man. <laughs> um, <laughs> why, yeah. do you, why do you think he did that?
1: Well, you know, it's funny. Doesn't he say, again, I'm going to refer to the preface that he did to The Path to the Spider's Nests, uh, because that's talking about his early work and some of his attitudes toward toward it. And he speaks of being annoyed by literary analysis because it tells a story. Uh, it's a narrative, and uh, presumably it's because that narrative doesn't always sit well with his own version of what the stories are about. I feel it's kind of uncomfortable talking about Diego as being like Italo Calvino, but then... He's sort of like Pin in Path to the Spider's Nest. He's sort of like a kind of version that Calvino has of himself. He seems to have um, thought of himself as not useless, but a little bit wayward or lost at that Mm -hmm. time. So maybe there's that lostness that is there, whether that's him or not. It's so hard when you read, you know, someone's work to figure out where exactly the self and versions of the self kind of come together or are very different. Salman Rushdie did a reading of one of his stories, and it was a story that featured a certain amount of um, skirt chasing. And Rushdie said that he thought that um, this sensual skirt chasing kind of guy was very um, Italo-Calvino, I was a little bit troubled by that, thinking, hmm, I wonder whether (laughs) that's good, (laughs) whether that's Calvino or not, you know? But it it might be. It's just very difficult to say. But then again, his own ambivalence about his early work may very well be, because it's revealing in a way that he no longer felt comfortable with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, the story just, you know, begins in media race, and it more or less stays that way. We Yes. We hear how Diego and Michele were captured, but not what they were yes. doing before that, not what they've been doing for the last months, really. I mean, we can guess. We know they were partisans. Yes. But we, we know very little else about them except for a few details about Michele's wife. Yes. And I wonder why, why you think Calvino kept the background so sparse.
1: Well, that's part of his beauty as a writer um, for me and again if we could go back to some of his interest in folk tales there is that kind of sparseness that allows the reader in there's another writer who i adore named yasunari kawabata a japanese nobel prize winner who's also incredibly sparse but it isn't um ungenerous it's the opposite it's generous it it allows you to wonder about those details to have to build up the picture yourself. It's not that he is withholding, it's that he's making space for you within the story. And I find that generosity tremendous.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's allowing you to, to provide your own narrative.
1: Absolutely. And it's not because he doesn't know, or even that probably that he doesn't want to tell you. It's that that is the way of inviting someone to sit at the table with you, as opposed to dictating terms at which they sit at the table, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, going back to the idea about folklore. In fact, the the story has a lot of what seems to me biblical imagery, as you were yes. pointing out with yes. snake snakeskin yes. as yes. the as the villain. Yes. And that opening where the living Uncaptured wives are on the ground,
1: and the wives are in the garden. They're in the hotel garden. So, yeah. <laughs> so he's kind of going, <laughs> do, 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 do. and there's a snake in the garden. Do, 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 do. So he might have felt like I mean that might be an answer to why he was a little bit like abashed about it. That maybe he felt that it was um, pushing too much in that direction.
0: Yeah, and these men and in, in, floating in their limbo or purgatory, waiting for judgment.
1: Yes. Um, yes. It might be too much, not for me. I like it, but he might have felt that he might have felt that it was too much. mm-hmm
0: and at the same time, there's this really odd confluence of time and space in the story. Time is referred to as a web or a puzzle that can be reshaped yes. into different patterns. Yes. you have that moment where Michaela's pacing through a hotel hallway, but in fact, he's walking towards his death. It's yes. a thousand or two thousand paces away. yes. Why do you think we have this sort of collapse of dimensions into each other?
1: Hmm. That's a really interesting question and a tricky one to answer. Um, In narrative terms, I'm not sure. It's very effective. We've been talking about the story's connections to a kind of um, folklore, to a kind of um, storytelling. And so it may be that the kind of generalized time of folklore is guiding him here, that there is an expanded now for the story, if you want to put it that way, and that does share some kind of aspects with storytelling, folk stories, Mm -hmm. Um, that now that is all the way in the past, but all the way in the future as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's also a, a strange confluence of, of narrative elements here because most of the narrative is quite realistic. It's in a, it's in this folkloric space. It's also in a, a specific hotel, probably in San Remo, where Nazis did hold Italian partisans prisoner. And then we get to one section of the story that stylistically, you know, leaps and bounds away from the rest of it, where yes. we, we think we're sitting in this hotel and watching these men suffer. And suddenly, you know, Diego is seeing Michele as this ghost marching across the tables of the Nazis and the collaborators and inhabiting the homes of the rich and facing where any, you know, wherever any people in the future lie or destroy or obstruct. Um, and we fully enter a, a mythic realm.
1: Yes, but it's also, it goes back to your question of multiple times, doesn't it? Because that kind of sense of multiple times prepares you for that moment in which all of a sudden time is collapsed and it's past, present, and future, as Michele is both ghost and therefore something of the past and in the future. So that kind of, it's one of those elements of time being collapsed there that's really interesting. There's a lot going on in this story, a lot, a lot.
0: Yeah. I mean, perhaps that also has to do with being in this moment right before death, you know, this moment of waiting for death that stretches out eternally.
1: Yes. Yes. Somehow. Yeah, Yeah, that's actually a good way of putting it, I think. It's interesting that you can get at that by being so open. When you think of the space that he allows for the reader, and it's why I sort of think of it as a generosity, it just allows... All of these things that are at work here to work on you, as opposed to telling you to go over there and think of it strictly as mythological or strictly as mm-hmm. a form of realism or strictly as a version of you know existentialism. All of the elements, including the absolutely sophisticated structure of it, which is like tremendous for a 22-year election. Incredibly sophisticated, not less sophisticated in a way than some of the later work, but just maybe a little bit more bold.
0: Tell me, tell me what you see in the structure of the story.
1: Uh, we start with an image of the indeterminate, of the up and the down, of the garden and the prison, and we go through, and there is like a positing of this and that, of good and evil of the day-to-day and the mythological, of love, marriage, and non-love. All of these things are counterpoised, and the story is itself a setting up of counterpoises to end on what? To end on a moment between life and death, between reality and non-reality. So structurally, he's putting blocks against each other and leaving... Mm. The last block, unput or unset, for you to kind of think about or create yourself. Do you think that this is a moment towards their death? Don't know. Is it the moment towards their life? Don't know. But again, the structure, this, that, this, that, is constant. And um, interestingly, it's, of course, like a clock. Tick, tock, tick, tock, tick, tock. Quite lovely.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And the reversal of the ending, that moment, you know, when he says he's done, he's, he's been, you know, he's heard from Luciano that he's, he's going to be executed. Um, yes. Michele does. And, uh, and then suddenly, instead of the, the gray van, you have these buses. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything changes.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Or does it? <laughs> We're not sure. We're not. We can't. We can't say anything definite at the end, you know. But we. The last sentence is kind of is kind of interesting. In the desolate barracks of the north, all the way until they came back. Came back where? You know. Mm-hmm. Um. There's this really a lovely step, poised over. Well, I guess the abyss. You'd have to say in this case because he does emphasize the abyss,
0: the nothingness
1: mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. It's lovely. It's yeah, steps towards a nothingness itself, that indeterminacy. Damn, uh, it's beautiful.
0: And also this <laughs> the the surreality of the visions that that Diego has, where he yes. he's watching Michaela pace up and down the hallway, and at the same time he's seeing him in a noose in the water, floating to the surface, covered yes. in seaweed, and uh, in the midst of it all, this this white-bearded old man from the prison who's just urinating on the whole world. Yeah. Um, what do you make of that figure?
1: Well, it's lovely because I guess that would that would be a definite mythological moment. It's the old man, who's obviously got bladder problems, um, <laughs> turns into Poseidon. <laughs> I mean, he's, like, drowning the world, this old-bearded person, you know. This is one thing that is... Um, I guess you can't say enough, but there is a speed of poetic imagery that is absolutely transcendent, you know, in great work. And that is that you can, without objection, go from an old guy peeing in a corner into a cup which is rusted, to Poseidon. <laughs> <And> <laughs> it's it's magnificent, but the imagination does it as well. And one of the things that's lovely about Calpino's work in general is that it is absolutely in love with the human imagination, clearly. Not by saying so, but in its use of it. There's a, There was a moment, um, one of my favorite moments artistically, I was at um, the Globe Theatre in London, and there was a Mike Alfred's production of um, a Shakespearean play, I can't remember what it is, Cymbeline, and there's tons of characters in Cymbeline, but he had only cast six people, and there's a scene at the end of Cymbeline when all of these people uh, are on stage, and at times, one character had to play themselves as this, and then mm-hmm. as another, because they, they had you know, multiple roles. And you're sitting there in the audience, and when that one actor turned this way and then turned back to talk to themselves, Mm -hmm. you accepted it immediately. And that's what the kind of miraculous speed of the imagination that um, it just always overwhelms me. And that's what's going on here, too. It's going from this to that. Um, at the speed of sound, faster than the speed of sound, you know, it's just instant. Um, and going from the day-to-day, the squalid, to the absolutely mythic in that instant is just, it's its amazing to think that a 22-year-old or a 21-year-old did this.
0: Yeah, you have the same movement with uh, with Michele, who's, you know, at first he's pacing, and yes. Calvino refers to his eyes as bovine three times in one paragraph yes. and all you yes. can think is this sort of you know cow heading for the slaughterhouse
1: mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm.
0: suddenly he becomes an eternal shade you know yes uh, <laughs> marching yes. for justice through the through the centuries to come um, amazing
1: isn't it? <laughs> but i think that's one of the things i mean if we were if we were going to be truly professorial about it you could also point to the way words and images are repeated, three times sometimes, four times, like there's a constant insistence, which again echoes storytelling. There's a real storytelling element to this. So I guess you could sort of speak of Calvino as having a number of threads that he brings together, the experimental side with the Ulipian creation, the realistic side, and then also the mythological side.
0: Um, going back to that preface, and to the Path of the Spider's Nest, that, mm. that you pointed me to, there's a part of that where Calvino's talking about the landscape, his home landscape in Italy, yes, being reborn as this dramatic setting um, yes. during the war. And he writes, "...the everyday landscape of my whole existence up until that time had now become totally extraordinary." and full of exciting incident one single yes. story unwound from the gloomy alleyways bridged by arches between the houses in the old town all the way up to the woods and it was the story of armed men chasing and hiding from each other yes. um so suddenly even the landscape is a story you know it's embedded in the yes. in the physical ground around him
1: Yes, but I, you know, the other thing that I love about that passage is that he says it as a way to talk about why neorealism was so important because you could use the landscape, the landscape and the places that weren't normally looked at were filled with these stories and so it was like a coming together of landscape and story that allowed him to express where he came from while also expressing the stories that were within him. So it's a striking little passage that in that one as an appreciation for what quote-unquote realism gave him, the chance to talk about his landscape and uh, also and seeing that landscape filled with stories. He talks about strangers telling strangers stories, you know, just everybody bursting to to tell.
0: Yeah. I have a question. Why do you think we see this story through Diego's eyes and not through Michele's?
1: You mean why has he chosen Diego as our stand-in and not Michele?
0: Yeah, why are we not seeing it through the eyes of the man who's actually, who actually suffers this moment of certainty that he's facing death and then has the reversal?
1: Well, I mean, I'm not sure that um, there is a definite answer unless we revive Calvino and ask him. <laughs> but there is a sense in which if you were to deal with Michele, then you then deal with the inner and the stress of the inner in a way that would probably threaten to blow up the outer. Because when you see that sort of walking back and forth, that walking towards death, that intense inner, you could imagine somebody writing about it, and I'm sure it has been written about, but it becomes then a story that is further perched over the abyss. This one has decided that it is keeping its distance from the abyss, however close it gets to it. And in a way, you could talk about Diego as being an observer of the abyss while there are moments in which Michele sinks into it, becomes mythological, becomes a ghost, becomes something that is, you know, removed from um, the world of normal experience. So I think it makes sense to choose Diego as our stand-in because he is still, in a way on the side of life, whereas Michele, who may live at the end, we don't know, is in the deep stress of the abyss, walking towards it, that. and that's a it's not necessarily a harder story to write, but it is a different story,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: it's less poised it's It's over the edge,
0: yeah, yeah. I suppose Diego's the storyteller, and Michele's the story.
1: Well, and if your theory is that Diego represents Galvino, Mm -hmm. that would make sense that he he is also recognizing himself, quote-unquote, as a storyteller, as the one that is looking. Significantly, he's not one that's looking down. He's not one that's looking out to see a wife or a family. He's looking at the guys. He's looking at the men that he's trapped with. He's looking at the surroundings in a way. He is the storyteller in that sense.
0: Yeah, he avoids his own story.
1: Yes, yes. There's one thing that for me is so important about Calvino and so moving to me, and that is that a man with this kind of facility as a writer, and I don't mean facility in the, in, in, in the sense of um, something trivial, I mean that I, I, you see it with your students. There are just some people who, in their choice of words, in what they leave out, are quote-unquote natural at kind of writing. And you see this kind of deep talent in this young writer. And I find it moving that after that, when he discovers Renocono and when he discovers Olipo, when he discovers ways to thwart his own facility, something that he perceived as a kind of facility, Mm -hmm. that you're watching him putting barriers in his own way and constantly (laughs) overcoming (laughs) them. He's challenging himself. And I find that in the end deeply, deeply moving, that the career of Italo Calvino can go from this um, closeness to um, realism, this closeness to folklore, to, um, at the end, where he's using deep structures, where he's using... um, Oh, he used... uh, In Mr. Palomar, he used a a logic text by... uh, I I hate myself for not remembering. Grimas, I think it was. Um, He used a text by Grimas to vary the the, um, stories that are taking place in Mr. Palomar. And you see this man forcing himself to not be easy to not rely on his natural skills, to force himself into places that he couldn't get to otherwise, like um, Castle of Cross Destinies, for instance, where he's using a a pack of tarot cards to tell Mm -hmm. stories, which is impossible. Um, (laughs) That, to me, is deeply moving because it's a restlessness, but also an unwillingness to stay unchallenged. It's a taking on the challenge. And I think maybe more than anything else, it's um, for me a shining example of what it is to create through a life of art. Constant challenge.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much.
1: No, my pleasure.
0: Italo Calvino, who died in 1985 at the age of 61, was the author of Cosmic Comics, Invisible Cities, If on a Winter's Night a Traveler, and Mr. Palomar, among other works of fiction. His stories The Daughters of the Moon and Love Far From Home were featured on earlier episodes of the New Yorker Fiction podcast. Andre Alexis's novels include The Hidden Keys, Days by Moonlight, and Ring. The Night Piece, Collected Short Fiction, was published in 2020. Alexis received the Wyndham Campbell Prize in Fiction in 2017. You can download more than 180 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treesman. Thanks for listening.